Hello and welcome back to the Global Startup Movement with your host, Angie Berkowitz. Thank you for tuning in today. Now, I've spent a lot of time this year thinking about the future of this podcast and where the conversation on the Global Startup Movement needs to go. And that's included a ton of WhatsApp conversations with a lot of you over the past few months. I've reached a point where I feel the best way for me to serve this community is to really return back to my roots, to when I first launched this podcast and wanted to focus on going deeper into subjects with narrative-driven miniseries content, but I really just didn't have the resources or the equipment at the time uh, to properly record and produce it all. But now that the Global Startup Movement platform has evolved, we've grown our team here, it's really time to take our production and storytelling quality to the next level. And in order for me to do that, we'll be transitioning away from our weekly interview-based podcasts to a recurring mini-series format that will be highly produced, highly researched, and narrative-driven. This will allow me to spend more time going deep into the most important topics to properly extract and deliver the stories and candid insights that I seek to deliver to you all on this show. So with that being said, I'm excited to announce our first mini-series, Ecosystem Arabia, launching on January 5th, 2021. This will be a six-episode miniseries on which we're going to be covering the inside stories of the largest exits that have happened in the MENA region over the past decade, and we'll be unpacking the dynamic Middle East and North Africa startup ecosystems with insights from many of the region's key stakeholder groups. We're going to finish 2021 with our flagship podcast episodes before permanently switching to an ongoing miniseries format in 2021. Starting then, all podcasts will be organized into an archive website available on January 1st, 2021. And in honor of the beginning of a new era for the podcast, I want to play an episode from our first ever mini-series on startup ecosystems that we published about three years ago. Now, you can clearly hear the step up in production quality we've had since then, uh, but it's still a great piece of content and features insight from people like Brad Feld of Techstars and Mark Nagar of Startup Weekend. Because it's buried deep in the podcast RSS feed, I think it's a great time to resurface for all the new listeners that we've picked up along the way. So be sure to tune back in next week for one of our flagship Global Startup Movement episodes. But now without further ado, I hope you enjoy this classic episode from our first Startup Ecosystem miniseries. I left Toronto and moved to San Francisco in the late 90s and early 2000s, that is where anything was going to be happening in terms of innovation or tech or this transformative industry that is now spans the entire globe. Now that I'm working outside and working with all of these cities, what I tend to see that I think is a real gotcha is, is that you're still hampered by the traditional mechanisms that exist in your city, by your socio-demographic, by who has the power. But it does take hard leadership to say, no, we aren't just gonna go with the old guard. Like the time has come, unless you want your best talent to leave your ecosystem and go to London and go to Silicon Valley, the time is now to make sure that your ecosystem fosters those ones who wanna break the ceiling. Startup ecosystems are the world's new economic powerhouses. From Silicon Valley to Berlin, and from Nairobi to Hong Kong, the world's tech ecosystems are where creativity is unleashed, entrepreneurship is fostered, and economic growth is being accelerated. This is a podcast series created by GS Media in partnership with Web Summit, 
where we break down the different components that make up a thriving startup scene and give you VIP access into the Ecosystem Summit, an annual private gathering of 150 startup ecosystem leaders from all around the world on the Monday before Web Summit. My name is Andrew Berkowitz, and I'll be your host on this journey. When the national banks collapsed, several thousand Icelanders found themselves unemployed overnight. Here, as elsewhere, the police are first to meet the anger and despair amongst the population. During the past weekends, thousands have taken to the streets to protest against their government and allege corruption amongst bank managers. Iceland uh, went through a pretty major financial collapse in 2008. And that kind of reset the entire community here. This is Bala Kamalakaran, an investor, entrepreneur, and the founder of Startup Iceland. After losing his job in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, he found himself looking for answers, both on how to reinvent himself and the Icelandic economy. The light bulb moment came when I was going through a personal uh, painful moment, looking into what really went wrong and... I was looking into why the bank collapsed and everything else. That's when I bumped into this whole idea of founders and startups. So I kind of realized that all the founders might be going through some challenges. So I just wanted to go meet them. That's how this whole notion of startups and founders in Iceland came to be. At that time, nobody was thinking about that. The first time I met Bala was uh, soon after the economic collapse here in, in, in Iceland. This is Harkor Gundjesen, an Iceland-based entrepreneur turned angel investor. The economic crisis in Iceland was a very interesting moment in, in Iceland. You, you can't, like Iceland used to have an unemployment rate of 1%. You know, anybody who wanted to have a job could have a job. It was a really good economy and everything seemed to be going really well. Then people lost all their stability. They weren't really sure what was going to happen in the next few months or years. So there was a lot of uncertainty in the air. We didn't really have a startup scene before that because everybody that had any kind of talent to get a high-paying job at one of the banks. So if the economic crisis wouldn't have happened, I don't think we would have had the, been able to build up the startup scene that we have now in Iceland. Hakur was one of the many founders Bala met with in the years after 2008. Although he didn't know it yet, one of those early meetings planted the seed for what eventually became a defining moment for the young Icelandic ecosystem. We first met Bala uh, at our offices in Reykjavik, in this little incubator. We had no idea who this guy was. Uh, we knew he worked at an Icelandic bank and uh, represented some investors from the U.S. This is John Edvald. John was the CTO and co-founder of a small Icelandic startup called Clara, and was the first startup that Bala helped to raise capital in the years after the 2008 financial crisis. What we did was text mining for online communities. So it made sense to us to talk to companies that were in the business of making and, and running an online community as a, as a source of customers. And one of those companies was Silicon Valley-based Jive Software. So Jive is a Sequoia company, um, and I think that's how the introduction happened. We were kind of shopping around, not, not so much for uh, companies to acquire us, uh, we actually wanted to partner with a company like theirs. So the first, the first part of the conversation was from that, that perspective. It, was, it seemed to be a synergetic relationship. It quickly evolved from that point 
I got the sense, you know, Jive was in a kind of an you know, acquiring mode. They had shortly before acquired another company, similar size, and they were trying to kind of bolster their um, their offerings. And, and in our case, they wanted to improve on their analytics as part of their platform. And on April 18th, 2013, Jive acquired Clara for $10 million. The, the Clara acquisition was a very big event in the, the, the startup ecosystem here in Iceland because it was the first time when we actually got proof of concept that the startup environment and the, and the young startups that were starting off, that they, they actually had a chance of becoming something real and, and becoming international. In the years following the Clara acquisition, Iceland has built up a robust startup ecosystem with three accelerator programs, four venture funds totaling $90 million of capital, and have had two more Icelandic startups acquired by Fortune 500 companies. Not bad for a country with a population with just over 300,000. Thriving startup ecosystems are never isolated communities, though, and connecting with leaders in other ecosystems can create serendipity that, in Iceland's case, inspired the Startup Iceland Conference. I bumped into Brad Feld's blog, and he had just written about how uh, he was going to write a book about startup communities. I wrote to him, and I said, hey, uh, I'm trying to build something in Iceland, and uh, I've invested in this one company. And as they say, you get lucky when you're up at 4 a.m. in the morning reading blogs. He responded right away. I'm not sure that he used the word startup community in our first conversations, but he was unbelievably passionate about this idea of incorporating the many of the ideas around startup community into the entrepreneurial scene in Iceland. And when he would talk to me about it, it was uh, done in such a way that it was clear that from his frame of reference, it was the future of the health and the dynamics around Iceland. I came for the first time to Iceland in 2012 uh, for uh, Startup Iceland and was a speaker at it. The ultimate experience of that trip was one that put an imprinted Iceland on my brain in a way that, you know, from this point forward, I'll always think of Iceland as an interesting and powerful example of what can be built with a relatively small population, right? 300,000 people or so. And in a lot of ways, you know, that's very reflective of my experience in Boulder. Brad moved to Boulder in 1995, and his first 20 years there inspired his book, Startup Communities. Boulder is another great example of a small city that has built an exciting startup ecosystem. But Boulder's spirit of innovation goes back much further than just 2008. The National Institute of Standards and Technology was opened and dedicated in 1954 by President Eisenhower. I believe this region of the United States is fortunate to have this facility here to remind you of these things day by day that you may, at least in a sense, become a part of some of these great discoveries that will be so useful to mankind now and through all the years yet to come. James Burris is the public information officer, science writer, and outreach coordinator for the National Institute of Standards and Technology and the Federal Labs in Boulder, Colorado which is a research facility responsible for inventions including closed captioning, the atomic clock, and Doppler radar. In kind of bigger picture, as opposed to actual spin-off products and things that come from NIST, I think it's more of the atmosphere and the environment that NIST creates in Boulder and around Boulder that really helps feed the, the vibrant 
venture capital and startup climate that's here. Because when you win four Nobel Prizes and your research institution, NIST, has a direct embed at the University of Colorado in their physics department called JILA, because you have that connection, that raises the bar and the profile of the University of Colorado and draws up-team applicants for, you know, limited numbers of positions in their physics department. You have that kind of talent that's attracted here, and not only are those people thinkers and, and innovators, but it's also a, a hugely valuable work pool for startups to draw from. I first arrived in Boulder in uh, end of 1995, Amy and I uh, came here from Boston, where we'd been living for 12 years. Here's Brad again. And by 1996, I'd found a bunch of entrepreneurial friends and peers. And when I reflect on those uh, people, there were maybe, let's say, 15 or 20 of them. And almost all of them still today live in Boulder and are very engaged in the startup community here, uh, which is part of what led me to this idea in 2012, that it was a very long-term journey. Uh, it wasn't that these entrepreneurs got successful and then disengaged. It's that uh, some of them had big successes, but they stayed engaged. They became angel investors. They started new companies. They became mentors to other entrepreneurs. And they were just constantly involved in what was going on in the Boulder startup community. In that last 20 years, we've had incredible evolution of things in the Boulder startup community. I guess it's tw almost 22 years now since 1995. And that evolution has been steady and continuous. It's not like something magical happened and all of a sudden there was, you know, an amazing amount of great stuff. It was something that just built and built and built over time with lots of effort from lots of people on a continuous basis. And so Boulder became a top startup city in the U.S., consistently topping the charts in venture capital on par with cities like Boston and New York. Boulder and Iceland are both incredible examples of how any community in the world can create a thriving startup ecosystem when all the pieces fall into place. Boulder's culture of giving has resulted in their success, but has also inspired the creation of organizations that have helped facilitate growth in startup ecosystems all over the world, including Techstars, Startup Week, and the wildly popular Startup Weekend events. One of my friends, Clint, we'd been good friends for a while, he said, hey, you got to check out this thing, Startup Weekend's coming to town. This is Mark Nager, the former CEO of UpGlobal, the parent company of brands such as Startup Weekend, Startup Week, and Startup Digest. He took over the reins from Andrew Hyde in 2009, but before Startup Weekend became a global phenomenon and a connecting point within startup communities all around the world, it had its own struggles, just like any other startup. It was a total mess. This was one of the earliest Startup Weekends that ever happened. It was a total mess in terms of company formation because we had everybody working, like 100 people working on one single idea and then kind of arguing over equity by Sunday night. <laughs> what ended up happening, though, was uh, this transformational process of community building, really understanding that the answer to starting a business is about more about your network, who you know. It's about having a team that can actually execute, you know, access to the people with the knowledge on how to do some of those tactical things. Clint and I just had a phenomenal experience, ended up running through uh, Boulder, Colorado, 
on a random road trip. And uh, we told Andrew all of our ideas on, on how to make Startup Weekend what we thought would better. Um, we were just two crazy, naive guys. <laughs> and I think Andrew was kind of, kind of like, OK, whatever, guys, go ahead. You know, here are the keys. Go try it. We kind of brought on Frank as a third co-founder, if you will. We spent about almost 18 months as three guys in a condo. You know, we were just hustling. We were desperate for money, desperate to even make a rent. Nonetheless, continued to put on Startup Weekend events. We were filling out contact us forms on like big companies' websites. We literally did the contact us form on the Sun Microsystems site. Two days later, we got this response back from a guy named Jeremiah Shackelford, who was their startup evangelist or innovation evangelist or something. He's like, yeah, let's do a partnership. We'd love to sponsor you guys. That turned into a, our first like $30,000 check, which really was kind of the, the catalyst financially to give us a little wherewithal to prove that there was something really there. And as it turns out, there was. By the end of 2016, Startup Weekend events have run in over a thousand cities all around the world and has produced some incredible companies, ranging from Zarly to Loot Crate to a company that's become the API of APIs. Zapier today is 120 people, over 2 million registered users, over 20 million in ARR. It's been uh pretty fun and exciting to get to work on a project this scale. I don't think this is something we even imagined when we were working on it that weekend. This is Wade Foster, the CEO and co-founder of Zapier, a company that was birthed out of a startup weekend event in Columbia, Missouri. Before the weekend had started, Brian had shot me a message over chat and, you know, was like, hey, I've got this cool idea to pitch. It would be great to, you know, build this thing that can connect a bunch of these web apps. We'd been doing some freelancing where, you know, we'd done like a PayPal QuickBooks thing, a WordPress into Salesforce thing. And he was like, this seems like a cool idea to pitch. And I was like, oh, that does sound awesome. You know, when when it came time to vote, like, I was like, ah, eh, you know, the thing I was doing isn't so great. I really like this thing that Brian's talking about. And Mike felt the same way. Uh, the two of us teamed up with him and we're like, hey, let's see if we can see what we can make out of this. It seems like a really fun project to work on. We loved, I love web apps. I love working. I love productivity. The automation is like, well, everyone loves automation. It's great. You don't have to have to do as much work, right? Uh, it was a fun thing to work on. When we started working on it, the way the layout of the building was set up that we were in was pretty interesting because there was this like garage kind of in the back of the building. And we just went and holed up in that that garage area pretty much for the whole weekend as a result like we were able to get a lot done that weekend and uh by the time sunday came along we actually had like a functioning prototype of the beginnings of what zapier is today to show off to the judges and i think for us that was really exciting to see what we could we were able to build in such a short amount of time and gave us kind of the confidence to keep working on this thing it's like wow if we could get that stuff done you know in, in just a few you know in 54 hours like what what sort of things could we get done if we kept working on this we can probably make a pretty good go of it so for us the weekend was um pretty critical for getting kind of that initial confidence to uh put something out there and get the ball started on on working on zapier initiatives like startup weekend one million cups startup grind and even startup focus meetup groups can connect members within a startup community that would otherwise rarely bump into each other. But events like these aren't the only way to bring startup communities together. In a lot of cities around the world, incubator and co-working spaces have become the connective tissue of the local startup scene. You have reached your destination. So I guess this is it right up here. 
This is me walking through the streets of Nairobi, Kenya, on a cracked black sidewalk alongside a narrow and busy street. I turn the corner and walk up a set of dark gray stairs and arrive at a closed gate with two guards. Yes. Uh, I'm just working at the IHUB for the week. IHUB. Yeah. There's a coffee shop downstairs, and the IHUB's incubator space is on the sixth floor of a building called Centiu Plaza. Floor six. While I was there, I had the pleasure of hopping on a call with the founder of the IHUB, Eric Hurstman, to discuss the IHUB's impact on the surrounding Nairobi startup ecosystem. So 2008, we had this um, bar camp here in Nairobi, which is just an unconference where uh, for the past couple of years, since 2005 or six, we had been running them where the tech community would just get together and for a day and it would kind of be vote with your feet to go to whichever session you wanted to. And um, it was it was really interesting because at this one, it was just it was six, uh, I guess six, seven months after the post-election violence. The tech community had really come together. We had built Ushahidi in that time. And, and, um, and by and large, the tech community was starting to grow. So we had this bar camp and there was, I don't know, 250 people there. It was a decent sized group. And um, a lot of influential people showed up. But afterwards, we were sitting around, uh, you know, those of us who had organized it and saying, why is it that our tech community, we only meet once or twice a year at events like this? And what would it be like if we had a place of our own? And that was really the seed uh, planted that would become the IHUB. So was the IHUB a force that brought together the startup scene that was already there? Or did it lay the foundation for an Nairobi startup scene to start to form? Well, there wasn't much of a startup scene at all at that time. There was, you know, maybe, I mean, you can count them on one hand, the number of startups that came up that year. Kind of what had driven the community growth was, this, was the fact that we actually had engineers and web designers and, and guys trying to build things. So the builders were around, but there weren't a lot of guys thinking about the business of it. There was no capital being injected into startups at all. Anything that started up just happened to have family or friends who were willing to, to get something started. Or they were bootstrapped. The, um, you know, so there was, just, there was just nothing there. It took about till 2012, 2013, where seed capital started to come in for startups. Uh, and a lot of that was driven by the events we started to run, which were around pitching competitions, how to build a startup, you know, just kind of starting from scratch, starting from nowhere. And then guys came out of the woodworks because they actually knew what to build. Uh, but the problem was we still then didn't have enough people thinking about the business aspects of the startup. So then we went through this, this phase of, smart tech guys building things, but not knowing how to run a business, uh, investors coming in, um, not seeing a ton of returns on that. And, uh, and then I think since then, it's now seven years later, we've gotten into this phase of more maturation where it's not just the smart tech guys involved, it's also business people. And you take those combinations, mix it, mix it with that uh, investor money that's been coming in, and you start seeing some more interesting companies that have legs and can grow. And how long did it take for international investors to start to come to Kenya and notice the opportunities that Kenya presented? Investors and most people around the world were looking at Africa as a whole, not even just Kenya, saying, there's, you, know, you can't tell me that there's software engineers there, much less people who have ideas for startups are, are worth investing in. It took them coming to Nairobi and spending time with people to say, oh, actually, there is something here. And the way we would engineer that is, first of all, we had the IHUB, which served as this 
nexus point for the engineers and the designers and the business people and the investors and the media people to all find each other. It was really important to have a focal point, uh, kind of that nerve center that would bring everybody together. And if you think about it as a startup accelerator or a startup incubator, you've, you've actually got it wrong already. It's more akin to commons that you'd find at a university, right? Where anybody could come in. Um, it was, while there was some events and some things that we did that were structured, a lot of it was just open time, finding each other. There's a coffee bar in the location and people just having conversations. And that serendipity of finding other people really moved things forward. And sometimes we didn't even know who would meet up with who or why they would do something together, but we'd find out about it afterwards and that they met up at the iHub, they found out so-and-so was at the iHub, so they went there. Uh, they were two guys who worked out of the iHub and met up at the coffee bar. Now the capital uh, coming in was, again, it was a couple angel investors who had come in internationally, a couple local ones, not very active and very small amounts of money. The first seed money came in uh, when Savannah Fund set up uh, and we started really looking at what would it look like to put, you know, $25,000 minimum uh, into an accelerator where we would take five to eight companies at a time, not just from Kenya, but from really anywhere in Africa. They had a good idea, but they'd come into Nairobi and work out of the IHUB facilities for at least a month at that time. And then we could, we could help them on their way. We'd bring in people who are experts in, in, in certain fields to help them. Uh, there's other ones that came up as well. Startup Garage started uh, about 2013. And then, and then we started to see a few other small investors from uh, you know, the Bay Area and the U.S. or from Colorado or from London. Uh, the Dutch were very active coming in and just you know, starting to do individual investing. And it, it took a while. There's a lot of steep learning curve on both their part and on the part of the uh, startups on how to deal with each other. Because... What we think of as normal maybe now um, here, and even what everybody thought of as normal in, in, in the States, was not normal here at the time. You know, this idea that an outside investor would come in, they would inject capital, they would own equity, have a say in what was going to happen, was very new. And it took a, it took a little bit of a learning curve for those young CEOs and entrepreneurs. Plenty of different factors that have contributed to the Iceland, Boulder, and Nairobi startup scenes. On each episode of this mini-series, we'll dive into the different components that go into a thriving startup ecosystem and grant you VIP access to the Ecosystem Summit. You'll hear the perspectives from leaders from India. The government itself is changing drastically. It's becoming way, way more open to uh, new innovation and new startups to come solve some of the pressing problems that uh, India as a country faces. To Bahrain. Well, we have to try and present being small as a strength. And being small means access. And even from a corporate perspective. Is it true that all your startups have to use Windows? <laughs> of course. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud at the Ecosystem Series.